0: Hi, welcome to Fast Talk Femme, hosted by Dee Dee Berry and Julie Young. Our guest on today's episode is Brendan Quirk, the CEO of USA Cycling. Brendan started racing bikes in 1986. He has raced at nearly every level of the sport and his passion for the sport pulled him into the cycling industry in the mid 1990s and led him to start Competitive Cyclist in 2000, which he quickly turned into North America's largest e-commerce cycling business. He later served as Executive Vice President for Backcountry.com, then as President of North America for RAFA. In 2018, he went to work as the cycling program director for Runway Group, where he helped transform Northwest Arkansas into one of America's foremost cycling destinations. His experience in race promotion spans local events as well as international ones. In fact, most recently, he served on the organizing committee of the 2022 UCI Cyclocross World Championships. In his current role as CEO of USA Cycling, his mandate is to develop the sport of cycling in the United States at all levels and to achieve sustained international racing success. Our discussion with Brendan focuses on USA Cycling's initiatives to develop and elevate women's cycling, create more parity in the sport, and how USA Cycling is helping their athletes build towards the 2024 and 2028 Olympics. Welcome to Fast Talk Femme, Brendan. Are you a student athlete that's looking to up your game? Look no further. Hi, this is coach and physiologist Ryan Kohler at Rocky Mountain Devo, and I have over 20 years of experience working with junior athletes. I specialize in a physiology-based approach to training with a
1: focus on finding improvements that can make the biggest impact on your end goal. I'd love to work with you, so check out more at rockymountaindevo.com. Brendan, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. It's good to see you again.
0: Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. I wanted to start out by talking about the Olympics, LA particularly. You know, I was super excited when they announced that the Olympics were coming to LA, partially because I think we're actually around the same age, Brendan, and Julia's too. But for me, the 1984 Olympics were hugely inspiring. And I really believe that spurred growth in the sport of cycling. It also inspired me to get engaged in the sport. And I'd like to hear about what you're doing at USA Cycling to build towards the 2028 Olympics.
1: The LA 28 Olympics are the, honestly, it's the biggest priority we have in the organization. I literally have a sticky note on my bathroom mirror. It's 12 to 15 medals at the LA 28 Olympics. It's everything that we get up every day, everything we're doing, as far as I'm concerned, it all targets LA. That's as far into the future as we can, can look. And for us as an organization, yeah, it's the long term is what matters the most, long term in terms of how we're thinking about developing athletes for the national team. It's also long term in terms of grassroots cycling and how do we grow the sport in America to, to get people into that talent development pathway. But for us, we are very clear about what our ambitions are with that medal total. And the Paris Olympics in 2024 is very important to us, but home games is monumentally important it's USA Cycling. Is based in colorado springs the u.s olympic and paralympic committee is based in colorado springs there are about 40 other national governing bodies that are based in colorado springs it's, they call it olympic city usa for that reason and I spent a lot of time with my peers and what i can tell you is that everybody's on the same page the meaning and the value of a home games is just it's like 5x any other and you know how big the olympics are but it's that much more consequential and so um, every day we're talking about it and we're thinking about it. And as we prioritize things, it all boils down to the same question. Is this driving towards our metal goal for LA 28? But it's amazing. And before, we'll talk about it later in the conversation, I'm sure. But when we talk about our most important diversity initiatives and other things like that. So much stuff is orienting around LA. It's incredible the value that and the clarity you get by having that home games.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I felt like Connie Carpenter and Rebecca Twig inspired an entire generation of women when they went 1-2 in the Olympic road race in 1984. And it would be hugely inspirational to have another performance like that in 2028.
1: Well, look, I mean, you look at the if the US is going to win medals, it's going to be on the back of women. 2020 Tokyo Olympics were rough for us. We only got 3 medals, they were all women. 2016, it was 5 medals, 4 of them were from women. Uh, 2012, I think about four medals, all of them were women. So, since going all the way back to Beijing in 2008, men have only won one medal for the United States in the Olympics. Our success as a nation in bike racing historically has been, and for the foreseeable future, will be on the back of our ability to support and develop women and seeing their success. You know, even looking at last year, you know, world championships, we had 11 medals at world championships last year, nine were from women, one was a relay, one was from a guy. And so, you know, we, what we know is in the past, you know, I think about your time on T-Mobile, for example, you're talking about the real growth of an era when the U.S. was the number one cycling nation in the world. And the opportunity, we're definitely not there now, but that's what the opportunity is for us, is to become the leading, women's cycling nation in the world. Again, men, that's a that's a tall order if you're not Belgium or Italy or France, but women, you know, we can definitely do that. And we're really motivated to do that. So it's important to us. And I hope that we can, you know, a lot of stuff that we do, it's talking about women like Rebecca, it's talking about what happened back in the days of T-Mobile. It's all the magic that we've seen with women, what Kristen Armstrong achieved. Yeah, I think it's probably the only human who's ever won three in a row, your gold medals in cycling in the Olympics. You know, it's the women that inspire us the most. And so that's front and center for us looking at LA, and frankly, at Paris as well. You know, our success in Paris, we want to get seven medals in Paris. Women will win the majority of them if we're successful.
0: Well, I think we're seeing a lot of promise on the men's side too.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Brendan, it's, it's really great to finally meet you. And uh, it is interesting hearing you putting it in words, the success that female cyclists have had. But I think we still have some work to do in, in terms of growing like female participation in the sport of cycling. I'd love to hear what strategies and specific initiatives USA Cycling has in place or is working to put in place to draw more females into the various disciplines of cycling, but also retain that participation.
1: I think it's probably helpful to look at like different phases in a woman's life cycle as a bike racer and how are we trying to address those problems so let's say it's a woman who's never raced a bike before and they're curious you know how do they do their first criterion so that was really interesting last year when i came on board as ceo kind of went on a listening tour talked to club managers talked to event organizers talked to local associations like okay look you guys bring the sport of bike racing to life on a local level for us as a national governing body, we, we're not really built to be hyper-local. So how can we support you in achieving your goals on a local level? Most of these organizations wanna do the same thing. Clubs wanna grow, uh, event organizers wanna have more participants, local associations wanna have more events, and uh, you know, great opportunities to get more women racing. And so where they have started having some success was learn to race clinics. I'll give you an example. My wife, she was turned into a marathon runner, but, you know she'd never run before and she got involved in this program called women can run maybe you guys are familiar with that but what it is it's just literally you go to your local track there's some coaches and you start by you run 100 yards you walk you know two laps you run 100 yards you walk it's total basic building blocks of learning how to do a 5k and i think that was the big ambition is by the time you're done with this program you can race a 5k you know, it's taking that kind of approach, which is you make it approachable, you strip it down to very, there, there's just the absolute basics of what it is you're trying to achieve. And it's amazing the kind of participation you'll get in a clinic or a program like that. So we experimented that with that this year. We developed a program called Level Up Your Ride. We held it in nine different cities across America. And they were around big criteriums. So they were around... You know, the Intelligentsia Cup in Chicago, they were around, you know, the Littleton Crit out in Colorado, any of the, really was all, pretty much all the criteriums of the American Criterium Cup, which was the big Criterium Series, the Thursday or Friday of that week, we would work with a local race club to host a Level Up Your Ride clinic. And what that was, was exactly that. How do you corner when someone's right next to you? You know, how do you break into a corner? How do you think about shifting? Just basic fundamentals of pack riding in a tight technical situation for you know you, you're talking about women coming and you know they're in their lulu tights they're in running shoes it's that those are the people we were trying to reach people who otherwise they would never have the courage to come out and race so we hosted that in nine different cities it's a huge success the number of women we saw actually racing after that was a significant number you know it was a formula that worked So we can't scale that as an organization. We can't be in a hundred cities next year. So we are now developing a curriculum that really works that clubs and event organizers can perform on their own on a local level. And we give them all the guidance we can and the tools. Uh, It's basically teach the teachers, right? To bring down the barriers to getting women to try their first race. So that's sort of like one step in uh, in the life cycle. The next step in the life cycle Or a different step of the life cycle where we're um, spending a lot of time thinking about women is at the collegiate level. Collegiate is a really big initiative for us going into 2023. It sort of started in a roundabout way. We started on this quest of how do we grow junior cycling? And um, obviously junior cycling is essential to the health of the sport. We spent time with NICA, we're a sponsor of NICA, so they were very generous with their time with us talking about this. We talked with the industry, again, we talked to you know talked to existing collegiate programs, we talked to event promoters. The feedback we got was the same across the board, which is if, if you want to grow junior cycling, the best thing to do is going to be is to turn collegiate cycling into a legitimate sport because you got 10,000 kids per year graduating from high school mountain biking who... 200 of them go and race collegiately. There basically is no, except for 10 or 12 really good schools, there's no collegiate ecosystem. Well, college is a place that's majority women, right? Most schools now, it's 55 60% population is women. So if you want to find a concentrated women's population to get them into the sport, college is where you do it. So we raised the money. We hired a national collegiate director. Her name is Margell Abel. She uh, lives in Boulder now. She spent about, I don't know if you guys know Margell know or not. I know Margel. Yeah, yeah so she's, she's been, great. She's amazing. She yeah. spent a decade as the CU Boulder coach. You know, she's a national champion at cyclocross, master's national champion on her own. Both of her kids are very accomplished bike racers. She's a coach at Boulder Junior Cycling, one of the foremost development programs there is right now. And she is extremely passionate about collegiate cycling and the way in which that can directly impact women. Because it's not just giving girls who are racing in high school an opportunity to continue their careers in college. It's exposing the sport for the first time to this place where the majority of your population is women. But then as you start to think about the elite side of the sport, you look at the number of successful American bike racers over the last 15 years who were collegiate athletes in sports other than cycling. Kristen Faulkner races for Bike Exchange, a four-year rower at Harvard. You've got you know, Lily Williams just raced in the Tour de France. She's an Olympic medalist in Tokyo. She raced uh, cross country at Vanderbilt. You've got um, you know Lauren Hall, the only woman who ever won Get Webblegum. She played collegiate soccer at Mississippi State. Um, you know Meredith Miller, uh, you know multi-time you know, cyclocross national champion. has gone to Worlds for road and for cross. Uh, she played collegiate soccer at Wisconsin. So there's this long history of women kind of getting sort of like a passing visibility to bike racing when they're very focused on other sports. But then USA Cycling successfully helping with talent transfer to getting these women to come into to bike racing later in life. Having college cycling visible when these women are participating in other sports is going to be critical with that talent transfer process. And then finally, in terms of women, more broadly speaking, COVID killed our our development programs for junior and U23 men and women, started to go into decline after the, the Rio Olympics for reasons we can get into some other time. So they started going into decline after Rio, COVID hit, they completely stopped. So a big investment for us is going out there and we've successfully raised the money to bring, in particular, road and mountain. U23 and junior development programs back. So these athletes have more time at training camps in the U.S. and have more availability. you have more access to getting to to Europe to go race. And for us, everything is, you know, men and women, we think about it equally. You're never gonna see a program where the guys are doing it and the girls aren't. I mean, it's just not how it works at USA Cycling. So as we get the funding and as we get the opportunity both the young men and the young women are going to have it. So we're thinking about it kind of at all levels. How do we create exposure? How do we create access? How do we create support for women to get into the sport, stay in the sport, you know, and frankly become Olympic champions in the sport is what we want ultimately.
2: As you were speaking there, Brendan, I was thinking about like entry points. And in my experience, gravel and cyclocross have become really good entry points for female athletes. This, I think they're Less intimidating, more about participation. I mean, cyclocross is just kind of fun and funny and people are having a good time and people don't feel kind of left behind. So I think those have been fantastic for female development in the sport.
1: Here's some amazing women who are race you know, excellent at the road. Katie Klaus, Maddie Monroe. Maddie Monroe got a you know a medal in the relay at the Mountain Bike World well, Championships this year, but she got 10th at Cross Worlds. You know, we have got some amazing young women. Cross is tough because it's hard for anybody to make a living in cross if you're not Belgian or Dutch. And so cross has a purpose. I think we're at a little bit of a a crossroads right now. We're trying to figure out what the purpose is. We we love cross. We want to invest in cross, but we're trying to figure out what the role is in cyclocross and as far as Team USA goes and what our goals are. Because for us as an organization, we're really wired around the Olympics to go back to your original point TD. Um, And everything we do ultimately you know, it needs to result in Olympic medals. And cross clearly is great as a supplemental activity for road and mountain athletes. The extent to which we can invest in cross is something that we're vigorously debating right now and trying to figure out how to be smartest about it. And then in gravel, you're absolutely right. Lately, it's been a huge introductory point for people into the sport. And so, you know, how, how do we build pathways from gravel to road, from gravel to mountain is really important for us to do.
0: It's interesting with cross because, I mean, I agree, it's, it's hard to justify the investment when it's not an Olympic sport, given that your organization is so revolved around that. But at the same time, it really helps young athletes particularly develop skills that can help them. And it's also a really good entry point from the standpoint that you could pretty much implement a cross course and a cross race at any high school or in any park around the world. And, like, mountain biking, for example, isn't as accessible in that way. So it's more implementable from, like, the development standpoint. But I completely agree in terms of, like, does it make sense to try and take these athletes to the elite level in it? Maybe not, but...
1: the challenge DD, we would love to. You know, I would love nothing more than to have a U23 women's, you know, world champion across. The fundamental challenge we face... I'll give you an example. A young man named AJ August races for hot tubes, one of the best junior men, road racers and cross athletes of the world. I mean, definitely a top five kid. You know, he's won nation's cups on the road. He won the Copenhagen cross, a big Belgian cross race. Um, this fall won solo by a minute against a really tough field. I mean, this kid is legit. But at the same time, two weeks before the cross world championships at Hogerheide this year, he got invited to go to a training camp with Ineos for a week. Like, oh, my God, I get to go, you know, hang out with the New York Yankees for a week. Of course, I'm going to do that. And that's the path for these kids. If they're really promising and they really flourish in Cross, there's a real career, a real living, and real opportunities in road and mountain that right now don't exist in Cross. Cross is amazing. The challenge is just the opportunity, the financial opportunity in particular, and the career development opportunity for those young men and women just isn't there. And that's a real tragedy because Cross is so cool.
0: Yeah. So speaking about pathways, it was interesting. We spoke with Julia Violich in one of our episodes about collegiate cycling, but more about NICA because she's heavily involved in NICA. And she spoke with us about how difficult it is for a lot of the young women that come through NICA and come through the Bear National Development Program, that mountain bike development program that she's started to really see a pathway career-wise. And a lot of them tend to drop out of cycling when they're 18, 19 years old and no longer a junior and go to university. And one of her comments was, there's two issues she sees. Like one, collegiate cycling's great, but, you know, so far there's not enough schools with viable programs, which it sounds like you're already finding solutions for. And the other piece is just, you know, how do we help young women see a career pathway in cycling? And that's getting better too, because we are seeing more professional teams. We're seeing a minimum wage implemented, and and cycling on the road at least. But yeah, it'd be interesting to get your perspective on on that and kind of what you're doing in that regard. You know, I
1: think pro sports is hard. I mean, it used to. You know, the beauty of road is road teams are big, and so there's a, I think a perception of more opportunity with with road teams. I think that. With Bear, though, right, it's a mountain team. And you know, there are amazing examples of women who are doing I mean, Haley Batton Batten is incredible, and I guarantee you she's making a, a nice living doing what she's doing. Kay Courtney, I mean, oh, my God, she's, you know, you know, one of the top three American cyclists to ever live in terms of their influence on American race and culture. She proved that there can be a path. You've got younger women like Gwendolyn Gibson coming up on the mountain bike side. You know, she won a bronze medal on the short track at um mountain bike worlds this year you know, i think she just really believed and she is making a nice career for herself so i think there's a pathway i mean there are teams that are there you know your first year rider on the Trek factory team running the world cup circuit i mean that is not glamorous living no it's first year pro kind of stuff i think the pathways are there i just i, I do think when i contemplate bear and i think about mountain biking the number of available spots are so small I mean, Gwendolyn Gibson, she won a world cup this year. She won a world championship medal. She lost her sponsor and she was almost without a team until the last minute. And it's because Trek is really smart. They realized, oh my God, this rider is so amazing. Of course we need to make room for her. But that was a little bit of lightning in a bottle for Gwendolyn because she was so accomplished. It is really hard. It is really hard. And especially with this kind of post COVID bike industry bust where a lot of the industry support has dried up, it is difficult. Now, one thing we are working on is what formerly existed, which doesn't exist now, is a means to say, look, you can be a domestic mountain bike pro. Right now, there's not a domestic series that's coherent, that has real prize money so that maybe you've got a 20 hour a week job. But what you're really doing is training and trying to take your let's say you are a top three collegiate mountain bike racer. That means you're not good enough to be on the World Cup. Well, what do you do in between? What we want to do, and we are we tried to do it for this year. We just ran out of time, but our fo- we're, we're working on it in the background now. I expect it to come to life in 2024. Is a genuine national, a U.S. national mountain bike series. You know, there's a Swiss Cup mountain bike series. There's a French Cup mountain bike series. We need a similar race series in the U.S. where it's let's say eight races with a cumulative prize purse that's meaningful so that you can say, look, I'm going to give this a go for a couple of years. I'm going to see how I perform in this U.S. series. And you know what, if you're top five in that series or top three in that series, it means you're probably good enough to go over to Europe and give that a crack. But if you do it and you're top 10, you know what, you've probably capped out. But at least you have the opportunity to take that next step after kind of A-class collegiate racing to see how good you can be. So getting that national series in place in 2024 is uh, a big priority for us. We, I really hoped we were going to get it done this year. We were willing to commit $100,000 to the prize list for a series prize list, 50 for men 50 for women. We had a bunch of existing races who were like, we're in, let's do it. Just the logistics, the complexities of it were such that we just couldn't pull it off this year. So I think that's something else that we're doing that will be beneficial. It's sort of this bridge between high-level collegiate racing and World Cup racing will be, you know, again, this dream of being a domestic mountain bike pro.
0: I think that's a really good step. I think back to the Norba series in the 1990s, exactly right. and that was huge Bingo. for development. That's, a, so, that's a,
1: We call it the Norba series internally, and we're arguing whether <laughs> we're going to call the next series the Norba series. People who were not around in the 90s don't understand why we'd want to call it the Norba series. Yeah. <laughs> we're having a little debate over what the series is going to be called.
2: I mean, Brendan, I do think it is interesting— you know, chatting with you and chatting with Julia Violich. And for listeners that maybe didn't listen to that episode, Julia Violich is the founder and director of the Bear national team, which is arguably the most successful, longstanding development team in the country. But anyway, in her in our chat with Julia, she, you know, helped us understand like there is so much good happening, and there is so much of that pyramid falling into place in terms of development, where you have Nica, which is that big net. You know, and then you have programs like Julia's program. And, you know, she did obviously mention there's other programs out there. It's not just her program. But, you know, then that that program helps keep the kids in the sport. Then the collegiate programs and then all good feeders into USA Cycling.
1: Yeah, for sure. Julia is the godmother of American mountain biking. Uh, She has done more to grow the sport of mountain biking in the United States than, I mean, pretty much anybody she is amazing. She has given her heart, her soul, a lot of her money and a lot of her energy. And the thing about Julia that's amazing is she's capable of writing big checks. She's also capable of cleaning water bottles and she'll gladly do everything in between. Yeah, you know, she is fantastic and I really enjoy the time I get with her. And I've learned a lot from her and USA Cycling and Bear Together. A couple of programs that really stand out in terms of being bridge supporting athletes from being, let's say, accomplished juniors or accomplished 23 riders You know, as they're getting ready to make the leap to Europe. BEAR is one of them. BJC, Boulder Junior Cycling is one of them. There are a couple of universities. You know, CMU right now is a place that has just done incredible work supporting riders. With For us, without these programs, we would be in big, big trouble in terms of trying to execute successful development. So the the work that Julia has done has been invaluable. And you look at the you know American mountain bikers who are at the peak, who've been at the peak of success in the last 10 years, the number of those riders who at some point in their career were bear athletes, it's just incredible. So it's like the Bear Alumni Club is what it looks like. It's just amazing.
2: Yep. And I think too, in terms of the pathways for females, I think when you do have like the Kate Courtneys and the Haley Batten's, and it it just shows the possibility. You know, it's just like being on a team and one rider, you know, succeeds and it, it brings everybody else up. And I think that's what they've done for the sport. They've shown the possibility for other female athletes.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Haley and Gwendolyn, I mean, the women we have coming up right now, it's just at every level are incredible. You know, there's a young woman. Well, I think I may have mentioned her already. Maddie Monroe is another one of the U23s. Um, really at every level, what's going on in mountain biking in particular is really astonishing. And I think we are sitting here today talking, we are at the peak in the history of American mountain biking in terms of top to bottom talent, you know, current elite level, metal capable talent, The women who are one step down from that, these women who are coming up through college right now. I almost feel like it's like we're the Dutch. It's like we're finally developing bench strength at such a level that you can really become optimistic about what the future looks like for women in American mountain biking. You know, I, I think we as a nation, Women in particular, but but you're very likely for the men as well. I mean, we have the opportunity to be the new Switzerland. We can go and sweep an Olympic podium. Not 2024 necessarily, but, but as I look at 2028, the path we're on is that the bench depth is just incredible. And so it's easy to be excited about where we're headed with mountain biking.
2: Do you think that is largely due to NICA and just having that big net?
1: I think Nike is part of it. Nike creates opportunities for the really ambitious kids to have a little bit more racing, and I think it's helpful for mountain biking to be seen as a mainstream sport. It's just helpful for everybody. I think Nike, you know, Nike views itself as a, a kind of a, a youth development organization first and foremost that uses bikes as a tool. They don't. I don't think they view themselves as a bike racing organization, and I think they take pride in that fact. And a lot of the work that they're doing is diversifying away from racing. It's like their GRIT program just to get young women, you know, on bikes in any way, shape or form. Their trail, you know, stewardship, their teen trail core program. Just getting kids, you know, they need to understand that advocacy and building trail and maintaining trail is key to what it means to be part of mountain biking culture. NICA is, they're almost kind of like obstinate about saying we're not a bike racing organization. And I think that's right. And I think that's one reason why they've been successful. But they've really legitimized the sport in a lot of ways that are, where I think young women can look at bikes and feel as good about that as they do volleyball or basketball or some of these other conventional sports. And I think that's important. And NICA gets a ton of credit for that.
0: Hi, listeners. We're so excited that you're here to check out Fast Talk Fem a new podcast series that's all about the female endurance athlete. Here at Fast Talk Labs, we pride ourselves on being the pioneers of information and education in the endurance sports world for both athletes and coaches. If you like what you hear today, check out more at FastTalkLabs.com. Brendan, I want to switch the conversation a little bit right now to Talent ID. Sure. So you launched an exciting new Talent ID program in LA, I saw. Yeah. And Can you tell our listeners about it? Oh
1: yeah, it's amazing. It's called Search for Speed. So a huge problem that the entire outdoor industry and the entire bike industry, which is a subset of the outdoor industry, a huge problem they're trying to solve for is how do we facilitate diversity? You go to a ski slope, you go to a bike race, you go to camping. Basically, one thing that's the same is the demographics. You tend to see upper middle class white folks, predominantly male, doing all these activities. That is a real problem for everybody involved. And so full credit to the outdoor industry, the bike industry, bike companies, national governing bodies. Everybody's trying to crack the code on how do we welcome these underrepresented communities into these activities that we love, that we think are so magical. And it is really, really hard because... You can gift your activity to these groups. It doesn't mean that they want to take the gift. It doesn't mean that they want to participate. And um, how do you create opportunity where they look at some of these activities as being theirs so that they feel attracted to actually pursuing it, get involved in it? And that is a really hard problem to crack. So um, our best effort to try to address this is developing what's called search for speed. So It is focused specifically on track and and then within track, it's sprint track, right? Track has two disciplines. You've got sprint and you've got endurance. And so this is focused on sprint track. And our thesis is this. Our thesis is that you could probably build an entire, you know, you could probably build an entire Olympic team just around athletes from Southern California, right? The density of talented, young, athletic men and women in Southern California is greater than any countries as a whole in the world. It's the only place in America with an indoor wood 250 velodrome, which is the Olympic standard. And Carson is kind of in the middle of a lot of neighborhoods where you've got these really diverse communities, And then, you know, our track program basically died after 2016, we've always been good at women's endurance track, but men's programming died, and our sprint program pretty much more or less died as well. And so as we made the decision to bring the sprint program back back online, you have to build an athlete pool from scratch. And so we kind of tried to take a couple of factors and kind of mush them all together, which is... Concentrated population of athletic youth in Southern California. The track is there. There's a lot of energy around the LA Olympics. So a lot of kids have, you know, are eaten up with the Olympic dream in Southern California. Uh, and LA, the LA 28 Olympic Committee is very motivated to create a legacy for the Olympic Games before the Olympics. What you always see at the Olympics is they always talk about the legacy after the Games. And what LA wants to do is build a legacy before the game. So they're very interested in seeing Los Angeles youth participate in, in Olympic discipline sports now. So what the search for speed is, is we have a team of people based in Los Angeles and we are engaging with schools, with churches, with community groups, any place where there are kids. And we take these Watt bikes, see they're these really ultra heavy duty indoor bikes. We've got them wired up with iPads. And and what we're doing is we're getting these kids in these communities to get on these bikes and we're gamifying it. It's just like you go to a baseball game and you say, how fast can you throw a fastball? How fast is your pitch? It's that kind of dynamic where we're engaging with these communities and we're trying to make it fun and we're getting them on the bike. And what we're actually doing, so we're introducing them to, to cycling and track cycling. But what we're really doing, what we're testing for is six second maximum average power is what we're doing. And so if you get some kid who's a pretty good high school football linebacker, or some young woman who's a fullback on her you know, soccer team, he or she's got the physiological makeup to be a track sprinter, you get them on that walk bike, you know, from it's, it's basical, you know, watts per kilogram, you figure out what their power output is. Those kids who go through this, this open tryout, as we're calling them, that hit the numbers, we're then inviting them back to what's called a, a talent combine. And that talent combine is where we run them through kind of a a larger battery of tests to figure out if they've just got the raw physiology to be a track sprinter. And then those kids who make it out of that next level of these tryouts, we are going to do talent integration into our national team. And basically what we're going to say to them is, look. We have an Olympic dream, you have an Olympic dream. We desperately need to do talent identification. Our, our depth of talent in our track sprint program is very, very thin and we need to we need to build it up and we need to do it rapidly. And we're gonna integrate these kids into our sprint track program. What we know is that if you're coming from an under you know, underrepresented community in Los Angeles, you don't have means, it is not gonna work for us to say, come to the track, we'll give you a bike. You know, it's how do we engage with these kids in a way so that we don't just get involved in their lives when they're training and they're on the bike, but how do we get involved in their lives off the bike as well to make sure they're eating right, make sure they have transportation to get to the track, make sure they're actually going to school. You know, how do we deal with the kids in that part of their lives so that their off the bike lives don't create failure for what they're trying to achieve on the bike? So our our track sprint directors, kind of Aaron Hartwell. I'm sure you know him, Dee, from, from your racing days. And uh, in fact, you guys might have even been teammates at some point. Irv, as he's known, has been to three Olympics. He's won two Olympic medals. He's run the track programs at Trinidad and Tobago at Canada and in China. And what's very interesting is what he did at Trinidad and Tobago was he built that track program from scratch. You know, TNT is a very poor country. They happen to have a velodrome and they happen to have big ambitions. And the stories he tells of what these kids had to do just to get to the track. It's a two-hour bus ride, then a 45-minute taxi ride, then they had to walk two miles to to get to the track. It's like impossible to develop world-class athletes. So what Irv learned how to do was develop these kids as athletes on the bike, but also how does he help them manage their own lives off the bike? How does he get the family buy-in so these kids can actually try to become world-class athletes? And they were very successful. And if you look at a track world championships, or especially if you look at like a Copachi, you know, in America, a Pan Am championships, TNT is a track powerhouse. And it is because what the, the strategy was is you have to care for these athletes both on the bike and off the bike. So that approach is the approach we're taking to search for speed when we'll we identify these kids who we're gonna try to do talent integration to the program is that we want to work with them to get buy-in from their community at home alongside the work we're gonna be doing with them on the track as well. So we are really focused on this. We're trying to get 700 kids through the open tryouts between now and June. That's when the combines will happen. You know, our hope is to get about six to eight kids through the combine and then get those kids as sort of the next generation of youth getting integrated into our national team program. And our our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal is one of these kids will win a medal at LA28.
0: That community-based approach is so key, I think, because one, they'll all strive towards excellence if they're in a community that supports them along the way. Parental buy-in will be really key. It's good that you're thinking about all that from the outset. And of course, hopefully you're going to have some medalists out of it. But Ultimately, I think the way you're structuring the program is that a lot of these kids are going to develop transferable skills that will make them successful beyond what they do at the elite level of cycling, which I, I think is is really key. And it sounds like you have a really great system in place.
1: The hard thing for us, it, it's just, there's one massive challenge, a couple of massive challenges we face in a relation. One of the massive challenges is that being a national governing body and really making an impact on a local level is difficult. I mean, that's the great challenge for us. How do we really come to life in Los Angeles? And that's been the biggest hurdle for us. And it's also been the thing we've been the most focused on. But whether it's search for speed or whether it's supporting, you know, local races, you know, wherever they might be, I mean, that is always the great challenge. How do we really understand what the needs are of people who are bringing bike racing to life on the ground, local you know, in a local environment, that's the, the great challenge for us to keep our ears to the ground and to listen and to react to what we learn on an ongoing basis.
2: Brendan, was the impetus for this program the LA Games?
1: Um, no, the impetus for this program was the fact that our board, right, I answered to the board, the board said, look, diversity is really important to us. Cycling is really, really white. You know, we don't want to be the next skiing. We don't want to be the next water polo. We want to have a truly diverse community. That's, that's, it's, it's Yes, it's mostly about winning medals, but it's also about social impact for us. We, the board said, we think, we think this organization can do both. And so when you look in America, where is diversity programming and cycling the most successful, at least how it relates to athletic performance? I'll give you two examples. It's the Lexus Velodrome in Detroit, what Dale Hughes is doing there. You've got a velodrome that is literally in the middle of public housing in downtown Detroit. That has become a magnet for young Black men and women and young Hispanic men and women in Detroit to learn how to race bikes. And it's the Star Trek program, the Casino Velodrome in New York City, you know, led by Pete Taylor. Same thing. They've got a waiting list for kids to get into that program. So I went to the Lexus Velodrome for the first time. It was last March. And first of all, it's the most diverse community I've ever seen in a bike race in my whole life. So I was just blown away by that. The second thing is that, It's one thing to say, man, look at all of these, again, young black men and women, young Hispanic men and women, racing I on a velodrome with 50-degree bankings. It's a 166 velodrome. It's the scariest velodrome I've ever seen in my life. And these kids there are just owning that track. That's amazing in and of itself. But that's not what's most amazing. What's most amazing is the fact that Dale's programs and Star Trek in New York are producing junior national champions on the track now. So you've got young black men and women, you know, 13, 14 Omnium, 15, 16 Omnium, 15, 16 points race, girls, boys. These are black boys and girls winning these. These are Hispanic boys and girls doing it. This is where diversity is coming to life. Maisie Wimbush, yes, she did win junior you know, junior road race, uh, 15, 16 girls, I think it was, two or three years ago. And that was amazing. But where you're seeing it in numbers is on the track. And so for me, that's what the inspiration was. It's like, oh my God, these tracks have got it figured out. Uh, how do we take inspiration from that and have it also address a terrible need we have, which is we've got to accelerate talent ID for our track program to bring it back to life. But the inspiration, I will tell you, it's Detroit and New York. It's learning from the people who are doing it because it's amazing. If you ever have the chance to go to one of these bigger races at the Lexus Velodrome in Detroit. It's one of the most inspiring things you will ever see in bike racing.
0: So Brendan, our son Ashlyn, who's 15, got to race the Rafa International at the Lexus Velodrome in Detroit in January. And he was so impressed. And the racing was just super fun. I mean, they build a really good show. They make it really engaging. And the best part about it, I think, is that all of the youth programming is subsidized. So they have sponsorship. So there's no cost for anyone under eighteen to race to do the training sessions because the costs in cycling have like the economic barriers have become staggering. So I think that's a huge part of the success. And I think they've accomplished a lot, partially because of that. They have, you know, free bikes for the kids, yep. everything.
1: Yeah, there there have been some groups and some individuals who have really stepped up to help with that. I mean, one that I will mention, you know, the brand that is, I think, most associated with track cycling globally is Look. Look's team in the U.S. has really stepped up. They have given all the bikes that we need for grassroots programming at the Carson Velodrome in Los Angeles. They gave them to us, brought us free uh, because they want to help bring down those barriers. They're also working in Detroit and New York to create you know, really low cost availability to bikes as well. So, I mean, there, there are some good examples out there of good corporate citizenship, and Look is just one that has, I think, exceeded everybody's expectations. And so, they, I mean, they just deserve a shout out for that. We couldn't do what we're doing with Search for Speed if it wasn't for Look. And you mentioned the Rafa International, the Rafa Foundation gave us a very significant grant to make Search for Speed happen. So those are two amazing corporate citizens that are putting their money where their mouth is in terms of trying to bring down those barriers and trying to accelerate diversity.
2: Brendan, will the Search for Speed program stay located in the L.A. area?
1: So we are already talking about how can we branch it out to three new markets, Detroit, New York, and we're actually going to do a test event in Miami, the NCL criterion that's happening on April 8th. That's going to be the first time we're actually going away from Los Angeles. Here's the challenge, Julie. The talent ID is one thing. Talent integration, as it's known, is the next thing. So I'll give you an example. I used to live in Park City, Utah, and it seems like the entire Olympic team for ski jumping comes from Park City. Well, why? Well, because there's great programming and some great ski jumping hills there. Now I live in Arkansas now, my kids can have all the ambition and might have all the natural capability in the world to become ski jumpers, but there's no ski jump hill here and there's no snow. And so they're they're, they're not gonna be ski jumpers. It's same holds true with access to track time and access to let's call it the appropriate level of coaching. The whole point here is we're trying to bring this program to where people are, not where we want them to be. And let's say we find the most talented you know, 14-year-old who lives in inner-city Miami. Well, you know, if you don't have the Velodrome access, you don't have the coaching access, they can't move to LA. And LA is where this national team exists. And so it's tough. It's how we figure out how we can do an appropriate level of talent ID and talent development up to the point where that talent integration is critical. That's what we need to figure out right now. But Talent integration is the name of the game. And what we don't want to do is invest money in programs or in athletes that can't then take that next step in their in their journey. It's just sort of a misservice to everybody.
2: Right. I was curious if you would have staff like on the ground in L.A. to be supporting that those kids in that program.
1: Yes, we do in L.A. We don't in the other markets. So what we're working with, for example, I mean, we're having conversations, like for example, with Dale Hughes in in Detroit. How can we make this pro- this program come to life in Detroit? It's just shared resources, is what it boils down to. And you know, every situation is different, and so um, each of those conversations will be different. We made a very deliberate decision when we launched this, Well, when we kind of came up with this program, we were going to focus on one market at the outset to see if we can come to life in that market, if we can get access to kids, and if we can get kids to actually come out to these programs. Can we be successful? If we can be successful in LA, then we've earned the right to go to other markets. The idea of trying to make this happen in four markets at the outset would be crazy. It's been hard enough just to do it in LA.
2: Smart. Will you be identifying equal numbers of, girls and boys.
1: That's the goal. That's the goal. It's, you know, it's up to the kids to show up, but without a doubt, gender parity on this is 100% what the goal is. Sounds
2: like an exciting program.
1: It is. Yeah. We've got a website, searchforspeed.com. So it's got some basic information there. If anybody who's listening lives in Southern California and, you know, is is involved with youth groups any of any kind, any sport, you know, we'd love to hear from you because for us, it's just about us getting in front of these groups of kids. Talent ID—it's just—it's—it's it's crazy because you don't know when you're going to find that you know needle in a haystack, right? Who's got the physiology and it's got the aptitude, the desire? You, we just have to get in front of them and get them to engage with us. Well,
2: and I love the simplicity of the program—a watt bike—and then I think I heard you on another podcast. I think you had mentioned you take a plyo box.
1: That'll be in the combine. Yeah, that'll be in the second step. We wanted to make it super approachable and super easy on the first step. We wanted to really create zero friction for the kids. I mean, I wish I could show you some of these photographs of these kids or some of these videos. Some of them are hilarious. Just this big group of teenagers, you know, rooting each other on. It's like stuff you never see in bike racing. It gives you hope, you know, when you see that.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome, creating opportunities.
1: Yeah. (laughs)
2: Brendan, can you tell us about the roles that women play within USA Cycling, such as coaching, physiologists, biomechanists, sports psychologists, and nutritionists?
1: Our sports performance side of of the USA Cycling business, right? We kind of have two basic businesses, grassroots and sports performance. Sports performance is talent ID, talent development, it's World Championships and Olympics. Jim Miller, who you know very well, Dee. Jim Miller is the chief of sports performance. He's the big boss of that whole business, The way we are structured is that each major discipline has its own discipline director. So what that means for us is road has a discipline director, mountain and cyclocross has one discipline director, track has a discipline director, BMX, both race and freestyle together has its own discipline director. And so that's kind of in the organizational chart. If you envision it that way, gym on top, four discipline directors, Beneath the discipline directors, you've got coaches and DSs, directors, sportifs, directors, sportifs, beneath um, that group of people. So I am cognizant of the fact that Jim is a guy, we've got four discipline directors, they're all guys. And then when you look at our staff of DSs and coaches, it's a lot of guys there. There are some exceptional exceptions. I'll give you an example. Catherine Curry on the roadside, she was one of our DSs at the World Championships this year. And one of the most memorable things I saw was the junior girls team, just the, her connection with the juniors girls team was so strong. You know, for those girls, many of them, it was their first world championships. Really the the relationship between that group of young women and Catherine was so important. And, I th- and our junior women, they didn't get a result, but I think that they performed well. And one of the reasons they performed well was that the mentorship and just the sense of connection they had to Catherine. so just for me it was really obvious you know the, the benefit it's intellectually it's obvious what the benefits are of having women around but then seeing Catherine in action made that come to life we had a vacancy in our road discipline director position this fall we had to hire a new and it's a really really important role and especially with the major investments we're making in u23 and junior road development, you know, the discipline director is basically like a general manager of the entire discipline. So they manage all the calendars, they manage the riders, they pick what races to go to, they manage the budget, they help fundraise. It's a critical, critical role. And so Jim and I had an extensive conversation. I'm like, man, we both said it would be amazing to hire a woman in this role. So what that meant for us is, okay, in our as we recruit, as we build a pool of candidates, we need to turn ourselves inside out to try to get as many women as we can. And we ended up having a couple of really good women candidates in the process. So it's just first step's important. Women are part of the recruit. It's not stupid to say, but it's just, it's just these basic building blocks of... You know what a company's culture is like. You have to make an effort to recruit women before you can hire women. So it's very happy with the effort we made to recruit women. The challenge we ran into it's just fundamentals of what it is to be um it's it's to be a, a modern day ambitious woman in the workplace. Like women, my, my wife ran into this, you know, I'm sure both of Julia I don't know your family situation, but Didi I know you've you you probably run into this it's like you want to you wanna do everything you can in your career to exploit all the opportunities that are available to you to grow and make an impact. But at the same time, you've got kids at home and you've got a family to take care of. it's like, how do you manage both? Well, it's hard enough to manage both if you just wanna be a lawyer and all you have to do is commute to the office in the same town every day. But if you wanna be a road discipline director in a national governing body, which is responsible for rapidly growing development calendars that are primarily located in europe and you know this job means you're going to have to spend 90 days a year on the road and you've got a two-year-old at home guess what you're probably going to opt out of taking the job you're going to think about it really hard and have lots of sleepless nights but you know most likely you're going to say i can't do it and that's the situation we ran into the best women that we had in our candidate pool were somewhat recently retired racers who were extremely capable as managers, extremely capable in terms of the um, you know, administrative part of the job, new bike racing inside and out, could just as easily handle the men and be really beneficial to the women. But it's just the way the job was constructed, just couldn't do it. And so what we ended up doing, we're very happy with who we hired, Tanner Putt, who's amazing, and I think connects with the women on our team very well. But it just this is the problem you run up against in international sport. And and. You know, you guys know this as well as I do. You live on the road. And if your family situation makes it so you can't live on the road, it's just the job's going to be impossible. And um, you're going to be torn up as a human being trying to live up to all of these masters. So we recognize the need to get women on the team, on the sports performance team, but we're not there. First time in the history of the organization, the board is majority women. The way that the USOPC requires board composition to work at a national governing body. 33% of representation on the board has to be what's called a 10 year athlete. What that means is one third of your board seats has to be an athlete who raced for Team USA in the Olympic games, in a world championships or in a Pan Am games. So that population is really small of, of athletes that you can recruit for the board. So our board is made of 11 seats that means four of the, the board seats need to be 10-year athletes all four of those seats are women 100 of our athlete representation is women so you've got seven women on the board out of 11 you've got all the athlete reps are women and then our chairman carrie higgins who just got elected in december as uh, the first woman board chair in the history of usac she's also the first 10-year athlete board chair in the history of USAC. And in the currently in the NGB community, there are 60 national governing bodies in the American Olympic movement. Uh, she's one of only two athletes as board chair in the American Olympic movement. Then on top of that, we've got a very important organization called the AAC or the Athletes Advisory uh, Council. They are basically the group that directly interfaces with our population of elite athletes and the organization, and the board. They also interface with the USOPC. This Athlete Advisory Board or Athlete Advisory Council is made up of six athletes. It's one for each discipline. You know, road, mountain, cross, track, BMX. I forgot which one I didn't mention, which are six of them. Five of the six AAC reps are women. And you're talking Lily Williams is the track rep. Kate Courtney is the mountain bike rep. Clara Hossinger is the cyclocross rep. These women didn't get like thrown on it. They volunteered to run in an election to have these seats to advocate for athletes and five out of six are women. So when you talk about the critical places where power resides in the organization, there has been a, a women's revolution at USAC where it's majority women. On top of that, our chief marketing officer who is responsible for the lion's share of the budget the line share of the organization, especially how we make grassroots racing come to life. Her name is Erica Lehman. She's the first, to my knowledge, the first woman chief marketing officer we've ever had. And she is an absolute freaking crusher. She has made a massive impact in the year that she has been with USAC. So the impact, of although the coaching statistics are not where I wish they were, I can tell you otherwise in the organization, we are Probably better than any NGB in the Olympic movement in terms of the impact of women. Then on top of that, just final PS, because these things don't get talked about. And I think it's important. You look with David Lapartient at the UCI. He has made it a priority to create equality in the gender makeup of the management committee. of The, UC, yeah, the UCI management committee is the UCI's board of directors. And it's now made up of 40% women. You look, you know, 10 years ago, I don't know if there's a single woman on the UCI Management Committee. Now it's 40% women. And he's been very vocal about the fact that he wants to create gender parity on the Management Committee. The next election is in 2025. And I know he fully intends to do that. Then on top of that, when you look at the UCI, the heavy lifting of the UCI it's two people you have know, David Lepourtieant's the face of the organization the political face you know it's his agenda that's being put forth and he's done a lot of good stuff in his role his next in command the director general is a woman named Amina Lanaya. she's a Moroccan French descent she's from France her background is Moroccan she's a lawyer from Dijon and she is the most powerful the most influential woman in the sport of cycling on planet earth The amount of power that she wields at the UCI is monumental, Uh, the reliance that President Lepartient and the overall organization has on Amina is monumental, and um, a lot of the good that is going on in women's cycling um, globally is because of the conviction that that President Lepartient and Amina have about women's cycling and because the direct impact that Amina has at the absolute top table of power in the sport. So these things are not known, but it's kind of things you observe when you're in my seat is you see these changes that are happening in real time, and it's amazing. And I, and I think there's, a, I know, you know, given, you know, your interest in the in kind of the future health and prospects of women in the global sport, I think there's a lot of reasons when you look at how power resides, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about the direction of things.
2: Didi and I were chatting about this before we hopped on, and you know, in our careers, we had male coaches. I didn't have a single female coach, but I've just noticed like in uh, the NICA programs or the NICA teams I've been involved with that when there are more female role models, and I, I, I can't say this is a direct cause and effect, but when there are more female role models, more coaches, it seems like those programs have more females and retain more females. But I also understand the reality of the situation in terms of recruiting people for those jobs,
1: you look at coaching, I mean, what's what's interesting is this, when we think about a lot of our DSs and coaches are contractors and we use them kind of in and out based on what the events are that's going on. You know, road, mountain, BMX to some extent, those are disciplines where there's enough of a healthy professional racing ecosystem that the coaches are really in the trade teams, right? And so we don't have like a, a lot of like road coaches because if you're Claire Hossinger, your road coach is on EF, right? You know, if you're Kay Courtney, your coach is on Scott, right? You've got your own coach. For us, um, you know, what that means is that we have a lot of reliance on those organizations within the trade team environment or just within the ecosystem of those sports. And I know we've talked about Julia a couple of times, but it's hard to understate the impact that Julia Violich and then, um, you know, Nikki Kramer with, with Virginia's Blue Ridge 2024, the influence they have over American cycling and elite talent development is monumental. And especially Nikki, when you look at road and track, I mean, Jen Valente, you know, one of the five greatest cyclists in the history of American cycling, just one of the greatest track riders we've ever had. But she's technically her, she's on a road team, which is, you know, 20, Virginia's Blue Ridge 2024, which is Nikki's road team. And so, you know, the reach that they have goes beyond the disciplines that they're focused in and um, the influence they have on the pipeline of athletes and the support that they get. And the way that we engage with them is monumentally, I guess, it's hard to understate. We get a lot of positive influence from people who are not necessarily on our payroll, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: Brendan, I wanted to just come back. We spoke a little bit about the economic barriers, um, more related to talent ID and like getting kids into the sport. But I wanted to just talk about that further, more related to the development of athletes, particularly youth development. I mean, cycling's become an incredibly expensive sport. And I think that it holds youth back from participating in multiple disciplines, which I think can be hugely beneficial as you're coming up in the sport. One, to figure out your strengths and weaknesses, but also to develop bike handling skills like we talked about with cyclocross. And, you know, the, the travel costs are so high, registration fees. I was hoping maybe you could touch on some of the initiatives that USA Cycling has in place to reduce the financial burden, particularly for development athletes.
1: Well, I mentioned what we're doing with Search for Speed in terms of the access to equipment and coaching, et cetera, there. That's really the totality of what we're doing for track. Really, with road and mountain, there is not much that we're doing. I mean, one of the things that is a little bit painful to me, its I, I get it, but I also don't get it. And this is just sort of an editorial comment. Something going on at Nika, if I could rub a genie and, and make a you know, magical thing happen for NICA, it would be somehow to create a quality for the bikes that the kids race at Nika races. I think when you've got a kid who has nothing who shows up on a Huffy next to Wealthy parents who thinks their daughter is the next Kate Courtney, and so they're showing up on an S Works with NV Wheels at an age where sort of that you know, the way your self image is formed and self consciousness kind of does dark things with you. It's just kind of jacked up to have a huffy next to a, a, an S Works. I don't like it, and I think it's actually an opportunity for the industry to create a single class of hardtail mountain bikes that would be appropriate for Nike races. And, you know, everybody would throw up on that idea for a hundred different reasons, but there's just having raised three teenagers and having seen the negative impacts of that kind of self-consciousness in so many ways, I I know there is a kernel of something right to creating a single class of mountain bike. So that's just editorial content, a comment that I wish the world could do something about. But the, I would say that we have not done a lot to bring down the barriers. I think the best answer I have is this, is that in the last year we have brought a lot of new life and new energy to our relationship with USA BMX. So USA BMX is actually a private for-profit organization that runs most of the BMX racing in the US. When you look at kids who are aged, you know, five to 12, that's the, that is bike racing. That is like 100% what bike racing is. And I would be the first person to tell you, if, you had, if somebody came to me and said, I have a six-year-old, I want them to get race, to start racing bikes, what should I do? I'd say, find your local BMX track. That's where all the magic is happening. It's a great family environment. Uh, it's, the bikes are relatively inexpensive. You're running a lot of motos in one weekend. I mean, it's not the cheapest thing, but USA BMX is doing a lot of stuff to bring down the barriers of cost to kids who can't afford it. So I think that the best answer I've got is that the relationship we have with USAPMX is in a place now that we have an answer for young, for families without needs that want to get into bike racing. It's like, look, we, we're not going to help you get a subsidized mountain bike, but what we can do is we can steer you towards USAPMX where the costs of entry are the lowest. And it's just, it is the gateway sport for young kids to get into bike racing as a whole. And I think there's an abundance of evidence of that. The energy that we have in our relationship with USA BMX is about the best answer I've got. But yeah, we are a small nonprofit that's trying to grow the sport, recognize the cost challenges. We're just not in a position to really do much about it. Our junior licenses are the least expensive licenses out there. If you're racing NICA, your USA Cycling license is free. But that license cost relative to bike cost and travel cost is pretty much de minimis. So I don't know how much of a difference that really makes.
2: Brendan, I was going to make the same observation about NICA when you show up to a race and one kid's on an S Works and the other on a Target Special, and it's more than just the the image, it's an unfair playing field, you know. And I think the kid that's on the 21 pound S Works versus the 35 pound Huffy, you know, that the experience is going to be entirely different. You don't want that kid to be demoralized. You want that kid to come back. So I agree 100% with that and I I love the idea of BMX. It does seem like such a good entry point. It's simple, it's contained. You know, I'm sure it's it's more accessible to a lot more people. Yeah,
1: yeah, no it is. And I want to be clear about Nike. I don't I I don't want that to be taken as a dig at Nike. I don't think Nike has created this problem. I think its parents have created this problem. Uh, you know, I lived in Park City for 4 years and I see how well-to-do parents, you know, invest in ski equipment and bike equipment, and it's just if you're a cat one and you know you're on the edge of you know qualifying for a world's team and marginal gains really matter. Yeah, I, I get it, but you know, for a 15-year-old, it's like you know, who's just racing Nika, and it's just parental decision making is a little bit bewildering sometimes. So I just want to be, I just in case somebody from Nika is listening. NICA has done so much to create access for kids who otherwise wouldn't have had access. It's a parent problem, certainly not a NICA problem.
2: No, we love NICA. (laughs) Yeah.
0: There's a couple other things I noted in the last year with our kids being more involved in road cycling, particularly in the last year, that USA Cycling is doing very well. One is subsidization of the entry fees, like for instance, in Intelligentsia and in America's Dairyland. All the entry fees are, are subsidized and incredibly inexpensive. Like, I think they basically cover the insurance and that's it. So that was really nice to see because I, I don't see that happening up here in Canada. In fact, in many cases, the youth are paying as much or more than the adults sometimes, which is it's a big difference. And Then the other thing I was really pleased to see is that USA Cycling brought the Junior Cup Series back. And that's something that existed when I got into the sport and uh, was just so good for for development, but also that you brought it back with no TT equipment, Eddie Merck style time trial. It makes it, you know, a fair playing field for all these young juniors.
1: So I want to be clear on a couple of things. The decision for subsidized or low cost entry fees, Intelligentsia Cup, Dairyland and other places, those are the actual event promoters themselves who are making that decision. I'd love to take credit for it. But it's the actual event promoters themselves that are electing to do discounted entry fees for juniors, which I think is the right thing to do. And I I am like you, I applaud it. So I, just, I don't want to steal their thunder because it's, you know, they are entrepreneurs that are trying to make a living on these race series. You're trying to make them you know, economically sustainable. And it's a risk to subsidize junior entry fees. And I applaud their courage for doing it. So I want them to get the credit for that. Though I'll say the junior cup series, it was the event promoters of the races in the series that created the Junior Cup, it was not us. So again, I, I'm glad you've recognized the Junior Cup exists and we are 100% supportive of it. But it, I, I think what, what, what I want to be clear is it's amazing that in local markets, multiple event promoters are coming together in a way to uplift the sport as a whole. We love that, we embrace it, we support it. Again, I just don't want to steal their thunder. I'm really excited about the Junior Cup though. And um, we need more of that for sure. You know, I want to mention one, because I I can't believe we haven't mentioned it, but one other really instrumental program for young women that we're really proud of is called Sinisca, Sinisca Cycling. And this is uh, really, it's honestly, it's inspired by T-Mobile, where it's a combination of the national team and a a trade team coming together. And uh, it's based in the South of France. And it's 12 women, all U23s who are gonna be based full-time in Europe to really get that immersive experience in racing in Europe. And it's the bridge into the world tour. So it's of the 12 women, there's one young Canadian woman, there are eight Americans, three French women on there. And these eight American women, and some of them are amazing. Zoe Zoetal Perez is our U23 road champion. Catherine Sarkasoff was on our, I think on our Junior Road Worlds team this year. These are really promising women that if they if Saniska didn't exist, they would be racing a domestic program. They would not be getting the immersion into Europe. Maybe they get to Europe for like one six week block, but you know, it's not the kind of environment where they would be able to make those physiological adaptations to really become appropriate to step into the world tour. This was you know, a really great collaboration between us and some private sponsors here in the US And we are really excited about the direction of this team. They already won their first race in Spain this year. But more importantly, getting these U23 American women training days and race days in Europe, which if you say, what is the ultimate currency to say, what is the direction of your development of young women in terms of their trajectory to being world tour pros, to being Olympic medalists? It's simple. It's race days in Europe. That is what matters. You cannot race a domestic program and become a world-class athlete. Period, full stop. These young men and women need to get to Europe. They need to recognize Europe is where they need to be if they want to be bike racers. And we need to give them supportive environments for doing that. And that's what Samiska is all about. It's an incredibly nurturing, supportive environment. But at the same time, it allows them to to race at the absolute highest level as U23 women in Europe. And uh, it was a big, big breakthrough for us. And we're excited about it.
2: So is that led by USA Cycling
1: it's led by Siniska. It's a um, sponsor based out of Bloomington, Indiana. It's a guy named Chris Gutowski, is the kind of the manager of the team. They will do some races as Sinisca, some races as the national team. U23 and junior, and you guys know this, but your listeners probably don't, there are a lot of like five-day stage races in Europe that are critically important if you're U23 or juniors. That is an American, basically an American team. You're not going to get an invite to, but they will invite the U.S. national team. And so, to be able to either race at Saniska or the national team makes it so these women are going to be able to race in all the races they need to race in.
2: I think Dee and I both recognize, having raced the majority of our careers in Europe, that it takes your your level to a new height, and it, you really have to immerse yourself in it I think we would go at like stints of like say four weeks you know maybe three times a year and you'd really feel like you'd get in the rhythm of that racing it's so entirely different but it definitely I think takes your game to a new level
1: for sure yeah no doubt about it that's the best gift that we can give to these developing athletes is it's 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 this time in Europe, and so it's, it's really really important Hey, listeners, this is Trevor Conner, co-host of Fast Talk and CEO of Fast Talk Laboratories. For years, we've been sharing our training, coaching, knowledge, and experience through the Fast Talk podcast. We've been able to connect you with some amazing experts in the endurance sports space like Dr. Steven Seiler, Joe Friel, Dr. Stacey Sims, and Dr. Inigo Milan. Help us keep bringing you world-class experts by supporting us through Patreon. Just log on to patreon.com and search for Fast Talk podcast. Thanks for your support, and of course, thank you for listening.
0: Brendan, I think we should wrap up, but always at the end of our show, we like to ask for a few takeaways. So Brendan, you've been in the sport for most of your life and in a variety of roles that have had a significant impact on the sport. If you were to give a few pieces of advice to an up-and-coming female cyclist, what would they be?
1: That's a good question. I think the first thing is have really, really clear goals. Really understand what you're trying to achieve, not just as a bike racer, but actually out of life. And the reason why I say that is because I think women have two unique pressures I certainly don't envy. I think one, for some reason, there is, there is a pressure on young women to do it all and to have it all, to basically make no concessions. Yes, you can go to Harvard. Yes, you can go to the Olympics. Yes, you can be a world-class athlete. Yes, you can go to medical school all at the same time. You know, there's this notion that you can have it all, be it all, do it all, that I don't think is fair and I don't think is realistic and I think is detrimental to the achievement of any of those goals. I think at a certain point to become, if if you decide I want to be a world-class bike racer, then you can't be a Renaissance woman. If you wanna win a stage in the Women's Tour de France, if you wanna be an Olympic medalist, no, you cannot go to college while you're training. I don't think you can, that's my opinion. And that's okay, because there's plenty of time to go to college, uh, but it's you, you have to understand what your priorities are as a human being, and you have to fully lock in and focus on that. And I think that then dovetails with the second concern I have that I have seen come to life, which is there is a really nefarious pressure that social media gives young women athletes to seem like they are perfect. Their training is perfect, their racing is perfect, their private lives are perfect, their family is perfect. And the fiction of the picture that you have to paint on social media is something it's impossible to fulfill. So if you go to your A race and you crash or you finish 16th instead of first, I, I think the, the sense of failure and the sense of demoralization you feel is far worse than it might have been otherwise. And so, I think it's it's understand what your goals are, how you're going to get there. That's piece of advice number one. I think piece of advice number two is be. And, and I'm only saying this because I've seen this come to life by the current a, a lot of women in the world of sport right now. Just be careful with the picture you paint on social media of who you are, and what you're trying to achieve, because I wouldn't want you to become your own worst enemy as you're trying to to be ambitious. I hope that doesn't, doesn't sound patronizing or like an old man.
0: No, I completely agree, Brendan. Interestingly, our next episode is with a sports psychologist, Julie Emmerman, and we're going to discuss body image specifically related to social media pressures. So many women are struggling to find a balance with that as they develop. It's important to think about what image you want to present. Brandon, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. It was a great conversation and we appreciate you sharing all the initiatives that you're working on at USA Cycling. And it sounds like you're doing a lot to advance women's cycling, which we appreciate. So thank you.
1: We're trying. Good, we'll check in again next year and see how it's going.
0: That was another episode of Fast Talk Femme. Subscribe to Fast Talk Femme wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk Fam are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback and any thoughts you have on topics or guests that may be of interest for you. Get in touch via social. You can find Fast Talk Labs on Twitter and Instagram at Fast Talk Labs, where you'll also find all of our episodes. You can also check them out on the web at fasttalklabs.com. For Brendan Quirk and Julie Young, I'm Dee, Dee Berry.
2: Thank you for listening.